21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Run Your Life podcast series. This is another episode of Four Times Mindfulness, which is Neela Steele and myself sitting together, uh, sharing our learning and a conversation around mindfulness. Um, we haven't done one uh, done one of these podcasts in, in quite some time. So just to set the frame, we are in Athens, Greece. We just started our summer vacation, and uh, we're pretty excited to sit down and record another episode of our mindfulness uh, podcast. And uh, I just wanted to begin with uh, the reason why we're in Greece. And during our summer vacations, we always go back to Canada, which is our home country, but this summer, we've decided to not go back to Canada and, and stay abroad and uh, come to Greece. So, Neela Steele, first of all, just say hello to everybody, and then maybe you can describe why we're in Greece and, and what's going to happen this summer. Greece has always been on our list of places to come and visit. Uh, the last time I was here, I was 19, and it was backpacking and jumping on ferries. Uh, so now it's so nice to be here with you and Eli and Ty. Um, but the main reason we're here is uh, this summer I'm doing a 200-hour yoga teacher training certification, and that is in addition to my Hatha certification. It's going to be four weeks, um, which is bittersweet because it's something that I love to do, but it also takes me away from you and the boys when uh, we get to unwind together in the summer, but I'm super excited to be doing this yoga teacher training course on the island of Avia, and that was one of the reasons that we came um, to spend some time together first, and then you and the boys will be traveling to the UK and having a solo boys holiday, summer holiday. In Scotland. Yes, and yeah. in, in England as well, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so one of the things is that you we um, were in conversation a few months ago and uh, recognizing that we don't want to say as we get older, time is limited, but there are certain things that we really want to do. And um, this came on your radar as being a wonderful opportunity, living in Saudi Arabia, the proximity to Greece, and this amazing yoga resort that you're going to go to. So when you say a 200-hour certification course, that's literally going to be 30 straight days of yoga, five hours uh, Well, it's it's yoga and meditation. Yoga and meditation. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's five hours, but uh, yeah, about... It's a full day. Yeah, yeah, lots of movement, lots of studying. But the other thing I wanted to mention was just, yeah, how close we are. Greece is only a three-hour flight from, from Jeddah. 
So I think that we should be making more trips to Greece since we're, we're yes. so close. But when, when you initially set out to, because again, you know, being um, a family, you want to be together in the summer and then go away together. And like you said a couple minutes ago, it's going to take you away from that experience. So we're lucky that we have like the next 10 days or 12 days together here in the Athens area. But can you just talk about um, that idea of uh, your commitment to your practice and what it is you're hoping to to get out of the experience? Obviously, it's not about the certification. It's about the experience of going and studying and well, I, before I do that, I wanted to touch on how you and I have always made time, whether that's been every year or every other year, to take time for ourselves. Like, you've taken solo golf trips, um, I've taken time to have retreats, and I think that's important. I think that's important to go off and take time for yourself, because then you can... Just reconnect with who you are. You At that point, when you go away, you're no longer a husband or a father. You're just spending time learning about or experiencing something that you're very passionate about. So, for example, for you, it's golf. Um, and for me, it's yoga and meditation. And still sort of trying to develop crafts and hobbies and areas that we're passionate about right. so I, I feel very privileged to take four weeks uh, during the summer holiday and, and really focus on anatomy and yoga and jolt my body into some physical practice and really take care of uh, my health and well-being and it stems from having a rough year um, this past year, reflecting on the school year, I had a lot of uh, issues with skin and eczema and allergies and maybe some environmental um, irritants. So I just really wanted to take that time to, to take care of myself. Yeah, which is making that commitment to personal well-being. And as much as we're going to miss you, I think it's going to be an amazing experience and you'll come back with a new perspective on yoga, having um, really dug deeply into a different type of practice in terms of meditation and the style of yoga you'll be studying. Right, right. Because I'm used to a more... I'm used to Hatha-style yoga and the course that I'm taking is uh, Ashtanga, and if you're not familiar with Ashtanga yoga, it's a more flowing, I like to, it, it's a little more of an aggressive yoga, I call it a, an aggressive yoga, because the postures are a lot more physically challenging, and there's different series to it, there's a primary series, there's a secondary series, and I just wanted to put myself in a position where I'm learning something new and I always still think of myself as a student of yoga I don't think of myself as an expert it kind of goes with the the quote that in a beginner's mind there are many opportunities whereas if you think you're an expert in something or if you think that you don't have anything to learn then the, the possibilities are, are shut down so I'm super stoked to, to do that and um 
we're just beginning our summer holidays and it feels still like we're in transition. We're not completely in that mode where you slow down. I think today is our second day and we are just sort of, you know, we're a little bit restless. We feel a little bit like, oh, we should be doing this. And then yet we're all tired. And so today we just declared a day of having a a restorative day where we just start chilling and really relaxing and, and we accepted that at about 1 p.m. this afternoon yeah. we had to, so we're in Athens and we're about 500 meters away from the Acropolis uh, we're at our friend's apartment uh, which is amazing Maddie Hewitt, which is amazing so Maddie is the former director of uh, Koust the school we work at and then Maddie uh, left Coast um, a couple years ago and I became two the dir- years two ago. years yeah. ago and became the director of NISA, which is an educational organization devoted to um, professional development for for educators and administrators. Um, so Maddie uh, generously offered her place to us. She's gone back to the states to be with her family, and we're in the heart of old Athens which is just stunning and the apartment that um, Maddie lives in is the apartment of a former Greek art uh, not a former Greek artist he passed away many years ago but of a Greek artist and uh, his studio was here he lived here his whole life his artwork is up on the walls his his books uh, just hundreds hundreds I would even say there's a at least a thousand books in this place of um, the things that he loved about uh, art so it's an amazing apartment and uh, and that's why like we being so close to the Acropolis we were going to go out today we were going to tour Athens we were going to walk around and that's when we gave in and said let's just chill out because it's such an amazing place so we're lucky to be here absolutely yeah so we will uh, jump into uh, four times mindfulness so Again, the this series, the episodes are devoted to sharing four things that are mindfulness-related. And uh, Neil and I share two things each in each episode. Um, so, Neela, what is the first seed of mindfulness that you would like to share with us today? Well, the first seed of mindfulness is recently I've been trying to uh, what's called maybe powering down and not reaching for my iPhone while I'm doing things uh, that might be considered mundane things throughout the day. So, for example, if I'm waiting in line to buy some groceries, I try not to pull out my phone. And um, sometimes I do it successfully and other times I don't. But I just try to take those very practical times to practice mindfulness and during those times I will try to become aware of my surroundings take a couple of uh, deep and spacious breaths and then uh, do some grounding work which is connecting to either my feet pressing into the ground or dropping my shoulders away from my ears so just really simple things um And that's just to, you know, not drop into the default of grabbing my phone every time. 
So I was doing this, um, the last week of school we had some PD, and uh, the PD was, uh, for those educators out there who are familiar with positive discipline, we had a morning, we had two days training with positive discipline, and the morning was quite mindful. It was uh, being aware of the language we use with our students, uh, you know, practicing strategies that help to self-regulate. And so uh, the the background is that I was waiting in line. It was a big university cafeteria at Cast. So at lunchtime. Yes, and it's peak time during lunchtime. So I was over by the deli counter, and this is where you had your sandwiches made to order. And there was a man in front of me, and I was doing my really practicing mindfulness purposely in that moment. So reiterating that I was taking a couple breaths, I was just calming myself, and... Were you calming yourself because you were waiting in line? Were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the line, um, it, it felt like a long time just mm-hmm. to even order your sandwich. So there was a man in front of me and he ordered two sandwiches, and I noticed that he had pulled out his phone several times, Uh, he was tapping his feet, and I was making observations that he looked very impatient, and the man who was making our sandwiches was doing it very carefully and not really throwing the sandwiches together, he was paying attention to what he was doing, at least that's the way that I saw it, and the man ordered his sandwiches, and then he got them back, and he flipped the top of the sandwich off, and he looked at it. And he said, where's the beef to the sandwich server? And then the sandwich server gave a look of, I don't know what you're talking about. And the man started to list the ingredients louder and louder. I guess this was like a club sandwich that included beef and chicken. And he said, beef, chicken, chicken, beef. And you could tell in the tone of his voice that he was becoming more agitated. So the sandwich maker, just to set the context, didn't speak English probably very well, right? I I don't know. I I think so because he looked very confused. And then the man in front of me proceeded with, where's the fucking beef? And then that's when... I said, whoa, 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 whoa. And I I said, "Um, he obviously doesn't understand what you're saying. You know, what do you need on your sandwich? You're you're allowed to be angry in this moment, but you're not allowed to react like this. I said something like that. I can't remember. And, And the man kind of said, forget it, whatever. I'll just take the sandwiches. And I said, "Is are, are you okay? Is What do you need on your sandwich that will make this better? And again, he just sort of said, it's okay. And then I, I just noticed that he was extremely stressed. And I said, is there, is there something else going on? Are, are you okay? Is this about the sandwich? And he said, yeah, I'm very stressed. I might get deported. So... You know, we're in Saudi Arabia, so it just gives you a little bit of background or context as to what this person might be going through. And then I responded by saying, that is definitely something to be stressed about. I'm sorry. Can I help you? You know, I don't know what I was offering, but I just was trying to 
connect and calm him down. And in that moment, he, I believe that he did calm down. And I just think that, you know, I, I could have just ignored that situation, but I felt the anger in that moment. And I felt the, the irritation and it wasn't pleasant. So as an observer or a bystander, I could have done nothing. But in that moment, I just felt the need to uh, intervene and say, are, are you okay? And I don't know what happened to the man, but I feel that in that moment, because I was calm, I was able to slightly diffuse the situation rather than it erupting into more of a scene or more of the anger. So it it shows that when somebody's somebody else is it's so easy for us to identify anger and frustration in other people but when we're caught in that moment it's very difficult for us to be to recognize our own anger and and when and that made me realize that when you're angry you're not open you're no longer open you're no longer flexible to other forms of thinking and I guess in that moment, it just reminded me the importance of being calm in any situation or being calm when you're waiting in line or just practicing the cultivating, feeling peaceful in several moments throughout your day. And what I really, you came, you sent me a message and then we talked about that um, when we met later in the day and what I really appreciated was that in that moment you made a conscious decision to practice mindfulness so before that moment took place yes so you were in the moment of practicing mindfulness and being present and not taking out your phone and that allowed you to be present of your surroundings right right and to observe your surroundings, and then suddenly you were caught up in this moment, which allowed you to not just sit back and do anything, but to respond in a very calm way. And as you said, you don't know what happened. Like, I think you diffused the situation, and then that person who you don't know went on, and whatever happened, happened. But in that moment, it sounded like they were reflective of their actions and they calmed themselves down. Right. Which is a gift that you gave them in that moment because maybe that's what they needed and mindfulness allowed you to provide that gift in a kind of a environment that was kind of rugged and chaotic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So walking away from that moment, what did you, what did you learn about yourself or about, you know, the you know, that mindful act? I, uh, I think for one, it, it, throughout your day, you're going to be thrown off kilter, whether it's dealing with somebody else's anger or as an educator, dealing with a situation with a child. And I think the more you arm yourself with moments throughout your day that are calm and, you know, taking yourself away from the constant worries in your head and your list of things to do by just taking uh, a little bit of a recess from that and practicing 
a few mindful breaths, a few sensations in the body. I mean, it's a practice. And I think it's also a reminder to try and practice um, loving kindness, so metta, meaning goodwill to others. Obviously, this man was not in a level-headed place, and he was under great duress, thinking that he was going to be deported, or that's a real situation for him, and then him having this displaced anger against a man who was making a sandwich, you know, that's not the, that's not the way to deal with it, and we've all fallen prey to displaced anger or so just trying to understand that I had no animosity towards this man even though he was being a a jerk in the way that he was reacting but I actually sort of tapped into the empathy and compassion like just like me he was hungry and waiting and in his head that time that we were waiting for our orders to be made he was maybe stewing over the the problem in his head. So there were two things, just the art of practicing mindfulness, and then the second is practicing empathy and compassion for other people who we don't know what's going on in their heads. And yeah, I think, again, it was just connecting connecting because I easily could have been just staring at my phone and ignored the whole situation. And that's what you know brings us back to the first part of your seed of mindfulness, which is the uh, habitual pattern of grabbing our phone when we're bored. Yeah. yeah. Because that's that distracts us and it, it helps us engage in the world of social media, whatever it is. But also that act of grabbing our phone disconnects us with the present moment. Right, right, right. And I think that's, like, evident in this case, you know? And then, yeah, 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 yeah. And that might stem also with how you just said social media makes us, you know, feel, quote, quote, more connected. But scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, it doesn't, there's no human connection there. You're just looking at these beautiful pictures of other people living their lives and yet we're we're consuming we're consumed by all that in the moment rather than yeah. yeah rather than just reminding ourselves of moments where we're just present with whatever is happening and maybe that's something ordinary and mundane but you you still have to drop into the present moment so that's my first seat of mindfulness right. and Moving on to the second seat of mindfulness, Andy Vasley, what would you like to add? Um, for, for my seat, I, a few weeks ago I was on a run, and there's a podcast. I have my go-to podcasts that I listen to, uh, and every once in a while when I want something different, I, I listen to NPR, an NPR podcast called The Hidden Brain. Um, with the the host is Shankar Vedantam, or Vedantam, sorry, um, but he great host, great concept. This podcast and this one particular podcast was was called Embracing the Chaos, and it's all about how chaos. When we embrace the chaos, it leads to us 
being able to produce better work. You know, chaos is something we want to avoid, but when we actually embrace the chaos, who knows what we can accomplish. So a guest that he had on the podcast was a well-known author. His name is Tim Hartford, who wrote a book called The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. And it's a live interview in Washington. Um, They had sat down at a conference to record this, and it was an NPR conference. It it was uh, amazing. Uh, But they sat down to record this live podcast, and and the story um, to emphasize the importance of embracing chaos that the author Tim Hartford shared was the story of a famous jazz musician from the 70s and 80s whose name is Keith Jarrett. And Keith Jarrett, the story he shared in that moment is that in 1975 in Cologne, Germany, uh, Keith Jarrett was supposed to do this improv jazz, just him, solo concert, right? And there was going to be about 1,500 people in the audience, so quite a small venue for somebody of his caliber. But he had agreed to do this concert. And he would always, he had this tradition of showing up two to three hours before he was going to play to, as he uh, described, uh, meet the piano. He was a pianist, right? So he wanted to meet the piano and, and play with it and get to know it. So two to three hours before he was due to play, he jumped onto this piano, which in his words was atrocious. The The piano was simply unplayable. Um, the black keys were sticking, the pedals didn't work, the upper register of the keyboard was really harsh and tinny because the felt on the keys had, had worn down. So, you know, it, he couldn't even play on the upper end of the, the piano. And um, nothing was working about this piano. So he simply said to the organizer, he was like, I'm not doing it. I'm out. This is terrible. I'm not going to get up on stage and do this. But what he didn't know was that the organizer was 17 years old and she was a jazz musician herself. And she had organized, like Keith Jared was her idol and she had organized this concert. And she literally begged, like she was an experienced pianist. So she went up and she tried to tune the piano and she could she couldn't really tune it, but she got it working a little bit better. But the fact remained that the piano was unplayable, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And she literally broke down in tears and begged him to play. And she said, you have to play. All these people are coming. So what he said in that moment, recognizing that she was a 17-year-old child, more or less, yeah. Um, begging for him to play, she said, or he he said to her in that moment, okay, I'm going to do it, but never forget that I did this for you. Consider this like the biggest favor of your life. And then his producer was with him at the time, and he said, you know what, pull up the cameras and record this disaster because it's going to be a musical catastrophe. And I want to know, I want future promoters of concerts to know what a disaster looks like when they don't plan and prepare instruments and the setting and the environment. So 
this is the attitude that he brought into it. And even though he was a very experienced musician um, that was very competent, he had just this one piano with all of these problems. Right. So what he goes on to produce in, in one hour and 20 minutes goes down in history as being the best solo gel, jazz album ever recorded. To this day. To this day. And he had to play, and he could only play in the middle section of the piano. He had to avoid the harsh upper registers. He had to stick to the middle. And then he had to like really slam down on the bass notes and create these repetitious or repetition bass patterns right. to add volume to it. And he even stood up at certain points and was pounding down on the keys yeah. because... The volume, the piano was small too, so it didn't have the volume to reach the back walls to create the acoustics. So he had to physically pound down on the keys to create this music. And suddenly it's like this is flipped and it becomes like the best solo jazz album in history. And it's this example when when Keith Jared reflected back on that moment, he was like, you know, it was completely an unplayable p- piano, but I made it happen in that moment because I accepted that's what I had to work with. Right. And that in itself is an amazing act of mindfulness and being present. Because if he got caught up in in this fear of judgment for not being able to play everything that he can play, and it was completely improvised too that he would not have been able to do it. So it was a tremendous act of courage on his part to say, you know what, I'm going to work with this and I'm going to do whatever I can do. And then he found his rhythm and he created something magical. And I think that in itself, in those moments of chaos, I think it's this ability to, to access an internal strength within ourselves. And we all have internal strengths that we bring to any situation. And when it's chaotic and it's crazy, we forget the internal strengths and then we go to fear, you know? And it's this reaction like, you know, I don't want to deal with that. I'm not going to do that. And then you start to re- react very aggressively or, or react in a negative way that does not allow your internal strengths to flourish. Right. So a lot of people argued that, you know, critics uh, that listened to that concert argued, well, of course he could produce that because he was one of the world's best jazz pianists and he had the shitty piano that he had to work with. And of course he could produce amazing music. But the reality in that moment was the piano was completely broken. There was no plan in place. And he put himself in a very vulnerable position to go out there and play in front of 1,500 people the unknown, you know. And he wouldn't have been able to do that had he not been present and been calm. And I'm going to play at the end of this, um, the second seat of mindfulness, I'm going to, I'm going to um, embed a two-minute audio clip of right. that, that, that jazz that, piece. track. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to just show how he was working with the keys and he, you know, he was struggling, but he was working with it to create this magic. But it wasn't because of his skill and expertise. I think that had something to do with it. It was putting himself in the position to, to just work with what he had in the moment to create 
beautiful magic. I think the what sort of I want to pull out from that is the thought that we think that we're in control, that we we think that we can ex- control a lot of things, and yet things are thrown at us throughout the day. And for him, those limitations actually allowed him to be even more creative. He he had so many, you know, hurdles. The, f- the fact that his instrument wasn't fine-tuned and it wasn't Not what he was used to. Yeah. And the also he was, you know, he did say to that young girl who had organized the concert that, remember this, never forget this, I'm going out on a limb for you. Uh, but it, it just reminds me that we do think that we're in control and we're not. not we're not. Completely. And that's all the more power to practice it being so present in the moment and understanding what you could do and tapping into reserves, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and he had got up at one point where he was trying to pound down on the keys so hard it was a physical act of exhaustion. Yeah. And uh, there was uh, people there had heard him audibly groan Okay. Because he was so tired from pounding down on the keys the physical, to create yes. the volume, the bass volume, you know? Yeah. So it's such a beautiful story. And when I heard that, I was so moved because it's like a masterpiece. And a masterpiece is within all of us if we can access our internal strength. But you have to be aware of what those internal strengths are. And it's taking time to reflect, and that's another mindful thing, that to take time to reflect on what are the internal strengths that you possess in order to uh, produce your But you don't know it until you're sort of tested in that moment. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I'm going to, before we move on to the third seed, I'm going to, um, you're going to hear two or three minutes of, of Keith Jarrett playing right now, and then we'll move into the third seed of mindfulness with Neil Steele.
So, Neela, uh, we're going to move on to the third seat of mindfulness. So what is it that you want to share? I want to take this time to lead you through a very practical exercise in mindfulness and how you might use this strategy to unplug and as it connects to my first story, to just practice through moments throughout your day when you find that you might be wanting to reach for your phone and the activity is called 54321. So just uh, as a preface, obviously if you're listening to this and you are running or riding your bike or driving a car, you won't be able to do this at this very moment, but hopefully you'll return to it. And so in this exercise, to begin, uh, first of all, you're just going to come into a physical stance, whether that is standing up straight with both feet planted firmly on the ground, or perhaps you're sitting in a chair and you might just sit up and elongate the spine a little bit more. Not too stiff, just relaxed. And at this point, you're going to take five slow cycles of breath. And that's one. And that's two. Completely exhale, and that's three. Starting to relax a little bit more, that's two. And one. And in this moment, with your eyes open, you're going to notice your surroundings, and you're going to pick five different things or five different objects that you can lay your eyes on and just identify in your current surroundings. Then once again, we return to the breath, and now you're going to take four cycles of breath, this time sipping in the inhale, relaxing and completely emptying the lungs for the exhale. That's one cycle. And that's two cycles of breath. And that's three, resisting the urge to rush through it. And that's four. And then in this time, you're going to drop into the sense of hearing and begin to identify four different sounds in your current surroundings that you might be able to identify. So for example, I can hear the TV on in the other room. I can hear birds outside. I can hear the AC. Then I was also very um, mindful of the sound of my breath. So we go five, four. Now we take three slow cycles of breath. 
And in this moment, we notice three different sensations in the body. So I might, Andy's sitting beside me, so I might ask you, what are three sensations that you're noticing right now in your body? You're asking me to... Yeah, respond okay. with... So uh, for me, it's probably, I'm a bit tired because we flew all night uh, the other night to come to Greece. So my body feels a bit heavy and tired. Okay. Um, I'm a bit hungry because we went out this morning. We had a coffee and that's the last thing I, I ate. And that was a few hours ago, so I'm a bit hungry. And I feel a little bit warm because we're in a corner of the house and the air conditioning is not reaching. Wonderful. So that's... We did five, four, three, and now we're going to take two spacious breaths. And we tap into the sense of smell. If you take a deep breath in, can you notice any smells in the room? Any aromas? Wood. We're surrounded oh, by a beautiful wooden table and wooden chairs and yeah. Is there another smell that you can identify? And if not, that's also No, I think only that and just maybe the like going back to the, the heat, you know, like it's not a smell but Oh yeah, you can Yeah the, slightly that yeah. that yes. And then finally you take one more slow and deep and spacious breath and we drop into the sense of taste if there is a taste in your mouth or um, just you might notice the sensation in your mouth uh, dry mouth or drinking some water and just tapping into the taste so I think we can definitely, you can do the exercise and you can just remind yourself to take five breaths, four breaths, three cycles of breath, two and one, depending on what you're doing. And then just isolate it so that you're just focusing on the breath. But you're working backwards from five to one. Right. Yeah. And then, or if you find it too difficult to focus on the cycles of breath and then you might just tap in and say what are five things I can identify in my surroundings um, four things I can hear and three things I can feel and other things you might feel in your body are tension or heaviness tingling lightness anything at all to just drop into your body and what I like about five four three two one is it sort of pulls you away from living from the neck up where we tend to dwell in our anxieties and our worries. And again, it's just a little break from the incessant thinking. And also to remember uh, what, what I like about this exercise is um, you might note that there is no feeling of pain or tightness in your body. You might notice, you know, well, this is nice. I'm starting to feel a little more relaxed. And then just really decreasing that urge to plow through things and rush through things. Or I grab know, your phone. Yes. Yeah. And I, I know for me, I always have this feeling, especially when I'm highly anxious, of like, 
rushing to do things, rushing to finish things, rushing to the next thing. And I have to remind myself, like, why? What is that? What is that incessant need to just, like, feel like I have to do something next, 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 next? So... And what a great activity and, and committing yourself to the practice, you know. And as you said, it's you might in your five breaths, after the second breath, you might already be preoccupied with thought that arises. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, you don't judge it. You're saying, Okay, I can't even concentrate for two breaths. You don't judge that. You say, Okay, I can't concentrate for two breaths and I'm gonna keep trying right right and I would love to do this uh exercise before eating as a way to practice mindful eating because when you're obviously you can tweak it to five different textures or tastes or four different sensations in the body to identify physical hunger is my stomach grumbling am I actually um, hungry yeah yeah, yeah. And, the, the, and then what a delight to identify all the aromas when you're eating delicious food and since we're here in Greece everything seems to be bright and the it, it, it's like an explosion of tastes in your mouth when you're in a new country and part of traveling that I love is, is exploring the food so yeah and one of the things that I like about this is is your permission to not your but the permission to adapt the exercise absolutely right? absolutely and if you can't handle five four three two one that's too much then maybe you just it's do three, three two, two one, one. yeah or two and one or four three two one whatever any, it is. you don't have to do the prescribed number but as long as you are creating a practice that you can remind yourself to do instead of grabbing your phone yeah, and that's so, such a challenge, so that's it. Awesome. Pretty much yeah. can be done anywhere. Yeah. So that's your pocket mindfulness, pull that out. Which leads us to the fourth and final seat of mindfulness for this podcast. Andy Vasley, back to you. Okay, so uh, for me, it goes back to uh, this idea that every day, we go to work, we greet our colleagues, we greet our students, we move around our workplace, wherever that workplace is, and we've got a lot on our plate, we have to do a lot, we have to be at a lot of different places, um, and when we're passing people, the human instinct is to say, oh, how are you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a very rote... Yeah. Response and a very yes. Yeah, right. Formalities. It's something we've always done our whole life. And I decided I, I had heard and you and I had spoken about this and and it's the, the art of ask, asking questions and connecting. And you're never gonna connect with people around you if you recreate habitual response patterns or questions such as, how are you? Right. And it's a nice thing. You, you see somebody and you say, oh, how are you? And they give the response, which is always, they could be having the worst day ever, but they'll still say, oh, I'm good, how are you? Because that's how we're programmed to respond. Right. But in actuality, every day is different, and you can have a terrible day, or you can have 
an amazing day and the response is usually, oh, I'm good, how are you? And it's an instantaneous reactional response, which is, oh, and what about you? But nobody listens and everybody, it's like two ships passing in the night. You just pass each other saying that on the way. And you and I had spoken quite a while. I don't remember exactly when, but it's like, how are you? The question is three words. So I practiced for one day asking a fourth word, which changes things up a little Mm -hmm. bit. And instead of saying, how are you? You say, how are you today? How are you today? Right. Today meaning it's a completely different day. And the way you ask that question, how are you today? There's a pause and then the today, which means, oh, that's thrown me off my habitual response pattern. This, my brain is now responding to this and activating differently to this question because you're actually asking me how I'm doing in this moment. But if you ask this question, you actually have to invest the time to listen to the response. So it's no longer passing by, how are you, I'm fine. It's how are you today? Right. And then there's an awkward pause and you both come to an abrupt halt. You're walking in different directions and then you have to invest the time. This This is an investment question because I want to know the answer. How are you today? But I think in your in your body language, you have to stop. I, I know you're giving the example of passing people in the corridor or in the hallway and in passing say, hey, how are you? How's it going? Which is very much a, a automatic yeah. question. But in your body language, if you're already halfway down the hall and you're saying, how, how's it going? I know that you don't have time to listen to me. So I think even just the act of purposely stopping mm-hmm. and sort of listening with the whole body gives that person the message that I have time for you and I have time for your answer and I'm genuinely curious about it. That's the key, genuine curiosity and like you said, it's that it's that act. So it could be maybe it's not just passing by each other in the hallway, but it's where you really intend to ask the question and stop and listen. Right. And I practiced this, uh, as I said, with uh, one day. I asked this to a bunch of people, and it was a bit awkward. Some people were kind of looked at me strange and just kept walking, going, oh, I'm mm-hmm. good. Are, are you okay? Yeah, maybe And then that... they, they threw out, are you okay? Right, like, right, right. Oh, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm asking how you're doing. But I think you, you maybe jolted them out of the yeah, normal. totally, right? How are you today? The, the other question I love, and I'm not sure if it's... Um, an Arabic question, but I love the question, how is your heart? How is your heart today? And yeah, the first few times you might get some people who are like, what, what, what do you mean? But when you stop and someone asks you, how is your heart today? You yourself have to pause to check in to say, yeah, actually I'm good or I'm struggling. I'm going through something that is challenging in life right now, but just by asking a different question will jolt people into, oh, what, what do you mean? Or they'll need to clarify. Yeah, and, and I, I did this with one of my colleagues, Ben. We'll call him Ben M, because I can't reveal his name <laughs> for privacy reasons, but Ben M from the UK. 
uh, acted like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? And then he literally stopped for two or three minutes and described his day, which was not okay. Yeah. He, he was busy. He was a bit stressed. He was anxious. There was a lot going on. And he, I stopped and I listened. And, and he expressed all that. And it was really a, a really cool interaction where we had that two or three minutes to connect and it really is the art of connection. But if you ask that question, you have to be willing to invest the time to listen. And the art of connection is what's missing a lot of times. And there was a couple of days later where Ben was walking past me and he was like, oh, how are you? And then about five seconds later, I heard today. <laughs> so he remembered it. And then I stopped and we both swung around and we reconnected and, and we had another 90 second conversation in the hallway. Right. And it doesn't take, it doesn't mean you have to suddenly stop for 13 minutes straight to listen to somebody's gripes or complaints or conversely, something great that has happened. But it is like investing more time in really listening to how people are doing and uh, really creating that sense of connection. Absolutely. And, that, and that's so important. So. That is my fourth seat of mindfulness. Not three words, but four. How are you today? Nice. Nice. I like that. So, um, we finish off every episode with a recap of the four seeds. So, um, Neela Steele, the first seed was? Not pulling out your phone and practicing moments of everyday mindfulness where you might take a few breaths and also maybe reaching out to strangers and just connecting. They don't have to have a moment where they're um, reacting in anger, uh, but just making connections with people as you're waiting in line. I think that was my first seat of mindfulness. Then the second seat of mindfulness? Unplayable piano. Uh, amazing story of the uh, jazz pianist Keith Jarrett in 1975 in Cologne playing on a horrible piano that didn't work but producing magic and that ability um, to produce magic is within all of us if we access our internal strength and we're, we're present in the moment of chaos which is the hardest thing to do in the world third seat of mindfulness is again practicing not pulling out your phone in everyday and ordinary mundane moments and practicing 54321, however you want to tweak that for your own personal use. And the fourth seat of mindfulness was simply instead of asking, How are you? How are you today? And um, really stopping to listen for an extra one minute or two minutes to the response of the person that you asked that. Too. So those are the four seeds of mindfulness from Athens, Greece. I feel very lucky to be here. And um, this is our hundredth, my hundredth episode of the Run Your Life podcast series. And We've come a long way. Yeah. You've come a long way. Well, it's like 100 episodes, like a lot of hard work being put into the podcast, lots of hours of editing and asking people to come on the show to share their stories and um, a little shout out to our friend Frank Stepnowski because Frank and I had actually recorded 
pre-recorded the 100th episode last year in Toronto. That's right. Yeah, uh, but Frank, I know you'll understand that, uh, that Neil and I took this opportunity to uh, put this one out there, but uh, that episode that we recorded, we will recreate. So, um, anyways, that's, that's it. Yeah, and we're always looking for feedback, and this has been um, our passion project for a while, and we hope to continue, and we hope to regularly record more four times mindfulness episodes. So there we go. Neil Steele, you can close off the show with loving kindness. The loving kindness practice is a great way to connect and to spread goodwill. And in practicing self-compassion, I'd like you to take some time in a moment to just say your own name silently and then to repeat, may I be free from internal and external harm. And once again, repeat your own name and say, May I be physically strong, healthy, and vital. Repeat your name again and say, May I have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. And a final time, repeating your name, May I experience love and joy and wisdom and wonder in this world exactly as it is. Have a mindful and present day, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.